Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. You know, some some chapters and some verses, some short verses even, are just packed with information. They just they just hold so much; they're almost bursting with with uh, meaning to us as as we look at them. And and I think this one is in particular because it's talking about Jesus, and it's talking about the fact that uh, he, first of all, he he made a good confession before Pilate. Pilate asked him the question, are you the Christ? And he said, did you say this or did someone tell you this? But he did confess the fact that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God. And he was the King of Israel. Now this text says that we ought to do the same thing. That we ought to be able to make that confession because Jesus is the one who is worthy of that particular oath that we give when we first come to Jesus Christ. We make the statement, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe that. And we believe that He is honorable, the most honorable man that has ever lived on this earth, and that He is powerful. He was powerful then, and He is powerful now. So, actually, Jesus was just replying to a question that Pilate had given, whether or not he was a king, when he answered in the affirmative, then this answer presaged the fact that he would be the blessed and only potentate, he would be the king of kings, and he would be the uh, lord of lords. And it was an honorable answer that Jesus gave to an honorable, honest question. Though Jesus was a poor itinerant preacher without any possessions he was nevertheless a man of honor he was a man of truth as a matter of fact he said on occasion I am the truth now no man can say that except him we'd like to say I am the truth but we're not and not only do we sometimes not tell the truth but sometimes we do not present the truth with our character We don't let people know, basically, what is right or wrong about ourselves, so uh, we sometimes pretend. And that does not give the, the honest answer that people would have in asking who we are. But Jesus was an honest man. He was who he said that he was. He was entirely true. He was an unpretentious man. And he was a humble man in the form of a servant. Someone who did not come down to this earth demanding respect, demanding attention, demanding honor that he was the Son of God. No, he came as a humble servant of his Father 
and is a humble servant of, of us. He was not while he was here. We, we know that as we read the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus, not the autobiography, but the biography. Individuals writing about Jesus tell us about him. He was not accorded the dignity of a respected or knowledgeable teacher, which he was. He was not accorded the respect of a, a good, honest man. Matter of fact, people picked at him all during his life. Even though he was the most honorable, honest and man of integrity that the world had ever seen or ever known, he was not treated this way. After teaching in the synagogue at Nazareth, he was badgered, he was questioned, he was chided, and he was belittled. He simply, this is the first time he spoke in the, in the synagogue at Nazareth, and after he got through, he simply cited some Old Testament texts that had to do with the situation that they were observing at that time. And it, instead of people respecting the fact that he knew what he was talking about, that he was a good teacher, that he was setting forth the truth, and he was shedding some light on their situation. Instead of honoring him as a remarkable man, as a remarkable teacher, it says they all in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. It made them mad. It made them mad at their teacher. That this man that that, uh, stood up among them, read the scriptures from Isaiah, and then said, these are being fulfilled in your ears this day. And he spoke to them. He was the man that spoke so as no other man had ever spoken. And yet, it made him mad. He did not, he did not gain respect of a teacher. It says, they rose up and, and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill. Imagine in your mind a gang hustling along this honorable man named Jesus taking him up on the top of the hill, and they intended to throw him down and kill him. And he passed through the midst of them. I don't know how. We don't know how. Probably in, in the chaos that was going on, they didn't even know who they had their hands on. But he passed out of their, out of their possession. After he healed a man of paralysis, they led him down to the ceiling. Remember, he was healing people, actually performing Miracles, acts that no man had ever done on this earth before. And when he healed a man, or before he healed a man, he said, he said, son, your, your sins are forgiven you. And instead of them being in awe and wondering, where did this man get this power? They accused him of blasphemy. You're blaspheming. That was the most serious crime in the Jewish law. Blasphemy. When he cast the demon out of a speechless man, as an honorable man, as a man of integrity, he, he did this for this man as a compassionate man. He let this, let this young fellow speak. And it says, when the Pharisees saw it, they said he cast out devils by the power of the devil. They didn't even give him the accord that what he did was the work of God, the good work. He was derided for being a master. You know, the, his, his followers called him master which was the word rabbi or rabbi. You heard it sometimes. He was, he was their rabbi. And they, he should have been accorded that dignity, at least the honor of the fact that he was a, a teacher in Israel. And yet 
when they they uh, saw him eating with the common folks, and he did step down from the elite, from the upper class, even from the middle class, I suppose. He stepped down and he consorted with common folks like us. He was just among the crowds. And they, they accused him then of being not knowledgeable enough to know that he had no right being with the ordinary folks. He should be on a higher level. It is said when the Pharisees saw it, he went into Levi's house at his invitation. They had a big meal. Levi was a wealthy man, apparently. Matthew, he became later on, later known as Matthew the Apostle. But he, he put on a big feast for everyone. And he invited everybody, even the ordinary folks. And when the, when the Sadducees and Pharisees saw it, it said, uh, they, they said unto the disciples, Why is your master, your rabbi, eating with publicans and sinners? What's he doing down here on this level with them? He, he was not given the dignity of being an honorable, good man. He was demeaned by the rulers when he was invited into their homes. He was invited into the home of a man named Simon. You remember? You may not remember the exact name of the individual and where he was, but anyway, you remember that a woman came in and she came in and began to wash his feet with a tear, with her tears, and dry them with her head of her hair, or with the hair of her head. And then she anointed his feet with anointment. And, and when Jesus saw this, and he saw how he was being treated, he turned to the woman and said, Simon, he, he talked to the man who was hosting the event. Simon is the man who invited him in. He said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss. You didn't even embrace me and welcome me. You gave me no kiss, but this woman, since I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, think about this just a minute. The most honorable man on earth, yet he was treated with disdain and contempt. Treated as a lowly, lowly individual, not worthy of their respect. He was accused of blasphemy time and again. That was, I mentioned a while ago, that was a capital crime under Jewish law. And when he was confronted with this in John chapter 10, verse 33, he, he said, you're trying to kill me. You're, you're wanting to stone me and put me to death. And the Jews said, uh, we're, for good work, we don't stone you, but we're trying to stone you for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, what could he do? Now, could he pretend that he was just a man? Now, Jesus chose a, a, a term. He chose a, a, a phrase to describe himself when he was on this earth. And that phrase was, Son of Man. He was part of us. That was the term. But he was indeed the Son of God. Because when he was asked the question, he asked Peter and James and John when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter said, You're the Son of God. You're the Son of God. You're the Christ. And he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you. Mankind has not recognized it. 
He said, nobody else is seeing it. Nobody's seeing it. He said, but it has been revealed by my Father. Okay. He was not assuming. He was an unassuming man, but he was indeed God in the flesh, but in the form of a servant. But that does not mean that he didn't have dignity and that we should not have accorded him honor and respect and deference. But he was not given that. In John chapter 10, verse 36, you remember Pilate said unto him, he said, uh, what is truth? And Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The truth will make you free, he said in John chapter 10. But he, he, told, he told Pilate that he was the truth, and Pilate didn't understand it. But Pilate was at, at odds not knowing what was going on. He was wondering whether or not he was the king of the Jews. Who was he? And he said, uh, of, Jesus said, Say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme because I said, I am the Son of God. He was talking to his, his accusers. Was he blaspheming? How, how could he say otherwise? When they asked him that question, could he have deferred and, and used false humility and said, no, no, I'm, I'm not really the Son of God. I'm just the Son of Man. But when he was confronted with that question, he did the honorable and right thing. He said, I am the Son of God. That didn't make any difference, by the way. Matthew 14, verse 61 through 64. When they asked him the question again, it said, he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So what did he say? Here is the most honorable man in the world, and he's asked that question. What does he say? He said, I am. I am. And for that, they crucified him. They crucified an honorable man for being honest. He, when he was accused of exalting himself, when he was accused by others of saying, you're making too much of yourself, you know what he said? He said, uh, I, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my Father that honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. That's John 8, verse 54. He said, I don't honor myself, but my Father honors me. He always did the honest thing. He always did the honorable thing. He always did the right thing. He always did things for others and not for himself. Is that correct? He identified with the lowly and the humble population. He freely moved among common folks and attended to all of their concerns, paid attention, was empathetic, sympathetic, cared. He cared. He had a genuine concern for the sick and the suffering. He had a genuine concern for those people who lived in constant fear for their well-being and for their, even for their lives. He was compassionate from those, with those who had strayed from, from God. Remember? When he, when he healed people, he, he would tell them, go and sin no more. Remember the woman that was caught in adultery in John chapter 8? They brought her to him. Ask what he should do, whether they should stone him. Stoner, I should say. He wrote on the ground. He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. They, they all decided to leave because they were all complicit in this thing. 
they were involved in it somehow. Either they had set the man up to go in with her or whatever it may have been. The man and the woman both were supposed to be stoned, but they only brought the woman. Why would they just bring the woman? Well, <clears throat> they were trying to, trying to trick him. But he did the honorable thing and he did the decent thing and he did the thing that this woman needed the most. He turned to her and he said, go and sin no more. He was compassionate. He didn't pick up a stone and say, well, if they're, they're not going to do it, I'll do it. He didn't. He assumed the position of a servant instead of that of a master when he could have been a master. He could have come down from, the, from heaven as a, in a thunderous ovation. The heavens could have shaken. He could have come down. He could have ridden a lightning bolt to this ground, but he didn't. He came as a humble servant instead of a master. And he willingly stood in our place when someone said, who will die for the sins of the world? Who will save this horrible, horrible place from sin? And Jesus said, here am I. And he stood in our place. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8 said, for when we're yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet for adventure for a good man some would even dare to die, but God commended His love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when He was resurrected, He was crowned with honor. God honored Him. And we honor Him. Now, in Second Peter 1 verse 17, it says, He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice from to Him from excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So when Jesus was on that mountain of transfiguration, and Peter, James, and John were there, and Peter jumped up and said, let's, let's make three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father honored His Son. He honored His Son. Whether anybody else did, and apparently nobody else did, because He died on the cross, without anyone standing up and taking his defense. Nobody. He died for us without man's honor, but he died with the Father's honor. In Philippians 2, verse 8 through 11, says he being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not only has God given Jesus great honor, seated at His right hand, but He has also given Him great power. Okay. Do you honor Jesus Christ? 2,000 years later, the question is still burning in our hearts and minds, do we honor Him? Are we willing to stand up and say, I, I believe He's the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords? That's the question we have in our hearts and our minds all the time. And what will it cause us? What will it do? Not only did God give Jesus honor when He spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, but the book of Revelation tells us that the honor that the Father has is the honor that the Son has. Now, there's, a, there's two, two texts in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 gives us a view of the throne of God in heaven. 
the Almighty, the Father. And it tells us that He's on a, like on a sea of glass. His throne is lifted up, and it's bright and shiny. And, and uh, there are four living creatures that are circling His throne. And each living creature represents one form of life. So there are four living creatures. This is taken from the book of Isaiah chapter 1, I believe it is. And Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 7 or 8. Anyway, these four living, living creatures represent mankind, represent domestic animals, it represents uh, feral animals, and it represents the birds of, of the air. So it's talking about all living things give honor to the Father. And then there are 24 elders that are surrounding the throne also, and they throw their crowns down before the throne of God. And these four, the 24 elders represent basically the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament upon whom the, the, the foundation of the church is laid. Okay. Anyway, and they're, they're, they're giving honor and glory to the Father. And here's the text. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, They're all saying this, You are worthy, O Lord. They're giving honor. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. Now, that's the Father. Now in chapter 5, at verse 12, we have the same picture before us, but we have the Son of Man there, Jesus Christ represented. And at verse 12, those who are surrounding His throne, and it says not only are, are these creatures there, not only are the 24 elders there, not only are there four living creatures there circling Him as well, but there are thousands upon thousands of angels circling that throne. And it says at that verse, at verse 12 in Revelation 5, it says, they're all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So now then we have not only the Father being exalted with honor, but we have the Son in the same context, in the same understanding, having the same glory. And it was promised in the Scriptures. The point I want to make is that Jesus Christ is not only to be honored but we need to recognize that He has power. And it's not power that diminishes over time. You know, there, there are a couple of laws of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is that everything runs down. That, that uh, energy dissipates. That there is no such, time as a, no, no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. You can't get energy continually, perpetually out of something. Drive one of these e-cars until it runs out. Then you'll know that it runs out. When your gas tank hits empty, it runs out. Everything stops. Energy dissipates. But this text tells us that he is not going to dissipate in energy or power. So he has the same power today that he had then that he's always had. Now, let's think about this. It was promised in the Scripture that the Son of Man would break down every kingdom on earth and set up his own kingdom and infuse that kingdom with power. Now, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45 says, In the days of these kings, 
And he's talking about, if we went back and examined the whole text, he's talking about the Roman government because he mentions the Babylonian government, the Medo-Persian government, the Grecian government, and finally the Roman government. We, we understand that. And every scholar, every reader of the Bible understands that point, that the last of these kingdoms was the Roman kingdom. And it says, in the days of these kings, verse 44 of Daniel 2, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It will go on and on and on a perpetual motion. That energy will never, never dissipate. Why? Because it is imbued with the power of God Himself. Okay. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. He's talking about world kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Forever. For as much as you saw the stone, that the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces, the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain. And the interpretation thereof is sure. And he's talking about Jesus here. We know that. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, he furthermore, he further brings us into the, into the scene. And he says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man. Who's that? When you're reading your New Testament, just be aware of the fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that every time you're reading about Jesus, He's called the Son of Man. And that's what He calls Himself. And this text says, He saw one like the Son of Man. He came with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient of Days. They brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Jesus has power. Power to endure and power to move people. Now, Jesus never wrote a book. He never ran for public office. He never held a public office. But he is unquestionably the most well-known and popular man in history. Who is this? What sort of power would it take for someone to run for the presidency of the United States of America or to be inaugurated or coronated as a king or queen somewhere? It takes power to do that. Some kind of influence. Some kind of power behind you. Did you know that fully one-third of the human population on this earth calls Jesus the Lord? Fully one-third of the population of the whole world calls Jesus Christ Lord. He is known on every continent of the world and He's even mentioned the Koran three more times than Mohammed is. He's mentioned 93 times in the book of Koran. Jesus is known all over the world. The most popular individual who has ever lived. The most honorable and popular. But he never wrote a book. But there have been more books written about him than any other man in the world. He, uh, his life and times have been and are currently being taught 
in major universities and colleges on campuses, and sometimes in high schools, at least if they're not being taught, they're being kicked out. So everybody knows about Jesus Christ. Everybody knows about the book that is written about Jesus Christ. The Bible is the most read book of all times. Not the most printed book, but the most well-read book. The one that everybody reads. It's on shelves. It's on mantles. It's in libraries. It's on coffee tables. It's on kitchen tables. It's on bed stands. It's in the bed, as a matter of fact, with people. It's the most well-read and often-read book in the whole world because it tells the story of a man called Jesus. He's powerful. And that, he, he's, he's, he's uh, been the most popular individual for the last 2,000 years. You know, John said this in John chapter 21, 25. He said, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one, I suppose, that not even the world could contain the books that should be written about Him. What sort of power does Jesus have? Well, we know He has the power of endurance, don't we? His reputation, His name. People know Him. People give allegiance to Him. I should have mentioned this fact also, that the people that pronounce the name of Jesus and call Him Lord are the most most persecuted people in the world at this time. Uh, for those who keep track of such things, there have been, in the last year, every year, there are over 150,000 people who die because they will not deny that they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord of glory. Over 150,000 people a year. Now, they're not committing suicide. They're not, they're not killing other people. They're not going around getting in wars and being killed in wars. They're simply being killed because they say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And they will not abandon that faith. Every year, 150,000 people die because they believe He's the Lord. Now, my friend, that's power. That is power. He has that power. And He has the power to change people that nobody else can change. He can go places nobody else can go. He can touch people that nobody else can touch. He can move people that nobody else can move. All the psychiatrists, all the psychologists, all the, all the people that deal with human behavior, sociology, and so forth, cannot do for humanity what Jesus has done and continues to do. He can reach into a heart that nobody else can reach. He has that power. And He changes that life and He changes that life for the better. Those who take up their cross and follow Him. Now, He doesn't tell them, you just follow Me. He said, you must take up your cross and follow Me. So He's not the Pied Piper. He's not the one who dances in the streets and attracts all the children. He's the one who says, if you follow Me, it's going to be tough. And yet, a third of this world population says, we want to try it. We believe you. We believe in you. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29 says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. He has that power to touch you like no one else can ever touch you. And He can move you when nobody else can move you. 
He can change you when nobody else can change you because He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. James Allen Francis wrote in 1926 a list of things that Jesus was. And I, don't, I don't want to read them all. He was, he was talking about 19 centuries that passed him by. And now we're always, almost close to 20 centuries since Jesus lived. And he was talking about the fact that he was born of a, in a humble beginning and he never owned a, owned a piece of property. He, he was not a wealthy man. He didn't go beyond 200 miles from where he lived. But just the last part of this is impressive to me. Even though he lived 20 centuries ago, he is still the, the uh, central figure of the human race. Jesus is still central figure of the human race. He is still the leader of mankind's progress. Of all the armies that have ever marched, and all the navies that have ever sailed, and all the par parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as one mm -hmm. solitary life. That is the life of Jesus Christ. He has the power to move you. Now, you can confess His name if you want to feel that power. You want to enjoy that power. You want to be part of the kingdom that has power, the power of Jesus Christ. He is the magneto of the engine. He's the one that moves the kingdom. He is the one that can give you power in your own life. He can give you power to overcome your problems. He can give you power to lift you out of your dip depression. He can give you power to change your habits. He can give you the power even to keep your tongue still. He can give you the power to overcome your inclinations to evil. He can give you the power to take hate out of your heart. He has that power. And He has that power when He's in your heart. He is a powerful, powerful ruler. He is full of honor and power. And I ask the question, will you bow your knee to Him today as so many others in this world have bowed their knee? God help you do that. If you haven't confessed His name, you need to, you need to confess. If you want to, you believe He's the most honorable man that ever lived? You believe He's the most powerful individual? If you don't believe that, you have blinders on. Because He is that. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. He is that. He's the most honorable man ever to live. And He's the most powerful individual. He didn't, he didn't conquer this world with a sword. He didn't captivate it with an atomic bomb. He didn't use nuclear weapons. He captured your heart and the heart of all humanity for good with His good life, with who He is. He has the power to heal and to correct and to change our course and to change the course of history, which He has done. And He'll continue to do. If you believe Him, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, to wash away your sin, to walk in His life, if you're ready to start again and to try again, He has the power in your life to take your hand and walk with you and help you make those changes that you have to make in order to go to heaven. To be a better person. To live a happy life. 
to be fruitful, to be beneficial to your neighbor, to your neighbor, to your fellow man. He has that power. Tap that power. Bend that knee. Say, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's stand and sing our song.